I didn't tell you this earlier, but I'm going to have to take a break halfway through to check my phylactery. I mean, to take a stretch break. But, I don't know what you heard, but I said stretch break. Because I'll need to stretch those mortal, definitely human muscles. No, I, I, am, I am a living person and not one of the mortal dead. So I need to take a stretchy, stretch, 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 wait, wait, stretch but, break. But, but you said... I, my paper certainly <laughs> reads A.E. Zombie Marling. Am I looking at the correct one? That's absolutely not true. My death has been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> and I know nothing about the ritual of 19 screams, which makes the soul forever ancient. And forever and, uh, frankly, I feel that you're a little bit rude to bring it up. So let's just move on. <laughs> you know, I could have sworn, but... Uh... No, 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 she... No, no, she... No. <laughs> Well, I guess I'll just have to uh, leave these uh, ashes of the forever dead. Just, uh, I guess I was going to give it to you as a gift, but I'll probably it have to is keep that. outright lie that elite inquisitors <laughs> are out for me. You know, and you do write about the I'm undead I'm definitely an not in hiding in an underground crypt right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we should proceed with the podcast. All You've right. taken up enough well, of our time gosh. with these ridiculous the, questions. The proverbial wrong foot. Do you even have both your feet anymore? <laughs> they were definitely my original feet and not selecting further <laughs> fine curvature. Uh, well, uh, I'm Phil DeLuca. I'm Sean Watson. <laughs> I'm Shiva. <laughs> and, and we are Commander in. <laughs> Mandarin. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We put a spotlight on community issues, but never, ever talk about four banned topics. Religion, politics, Hearthstone, and hip-hop. We usually don't talk about embalming, but we're going to be talking about that despite our guests' wishes. Uh, and as a reminder, midichlorians are distasteful, but we have not yet banned them. That's uh, Commander's Brew. <laughs> I get uncomfortable even talking about midichlorians. I just want that clear. <laughs> if you want to support the show, visit patreon.com slash commander at MTG. Uh, at this point, we are going to be getting Shivam some allergy medication. So, uh... <laughs> Sorry about it, man. Tis the season. It's okay. He hasn't told yeah. us what he's allergic to, though. Maybe it's embalming. Fluid. Politics. Mm. <laughs> And don't forget to visit us on YouTube any day now. We're going to have restart our video production. This week, we have a wonderful show lined up for you. We are going to talk about the flavor of Amonkhet. It's Almondy, isn't it? Almondy. Uh, Almondy. It's Almondcat, that's for sure. Um, A.E. Marling is an expert on sandy topics maybe <laughs> undead related topics but uh that that's a little touchy he has five cards in Amonkhet that he named and wrote the flavor text for 15 cards for which he wrote the flavor text only and 14 cards for which he wrote the name pretty amazing and in addition 
He is the author of the Lands of Loam series, which features Hiresha the Enchantress and a cast of other rogues, shall we say, a gallery of other rogues. A.E., welcome to the show again! Good evening. I am guilty as charged uh, to all that you accuse me of. Uh, I uh, am currently working on the creative text writing for Wizards of the Coast. I will be writing also for Hour of Devastation, then the following, <clears throat> let's see, Ham, Eggs, and Soup. Oh. Uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast are hungry people, apparently. I also have been writing some other novels, as you said. First and foremost, I'm interested in carrying people on journeys of imagination to help them to escape to a realm of infinite possibility. And I think it is important that uh, even in the darkest times, we need the brightest optimism, which is something that a well-told story can allow you to believe, if for however briefly. And uh, speaking of uh, <laughs> along those lines, we aren't going to be discussing politics tonight, but that's not to say that the politics that we aren't discussing are not important. And I hope that everyone is listening to this podcast at a time when they're otherwise unable to participate in social activism. And those times do exist and they're important. But again, I don't want to frame our conversation tonight in such a way to give the idea that what we're not talking about is not important. Mm-hmm. It's important to talk about politics now before the police brutality hits you and after you've lost your health care, you can't afford to get your broken nose fixed. So. <laughs> yeah, as I said, I will not be discussing politics this evening, so at least one person on this show respects the rules. <laughs> yeah. You say that after my first appearance was like two episodes about religion? Come on. <laughs> no, but the thing is, though, it is really important for people to be able to have a space where they can take a breath away from everything else and be able to sit there and say, okay, you know what? For these next two hours, I'm going to be able to just go somewhere else and recollect myself and kind of just regroup. And I think the value of like podcasts like this one and others is that we give people that space. I don't know. I love talking about politics all day long, but I also think that every now and then you need to just be able to hit the pause button and be like, you know what? The news will still be there in a few hours. For right now, I just need to fireball a bunch of people in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and what better way to restore your confidence than to just leave your opponents in little mounds of cindery ash? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you and I are both Grim Grin players, okay? So let's not pretend yes, like... Yes, we have that in common. Uh, we have good <laughs> necromantic heritage. Let's, let's not the... pretend that we aren't all about zombies right now. <laughs> I think the three Demir players here should all look across the table over at Phil uh, and just shake our heads in disapproval slowly. Well, I would, but then my head would fall off and it's hard <laughs> to get another one. <laughs> well, my head is reasonably well attached, but sometimes I do wonder, to be honest. But uh, no, I, I, uh, his, uh, his, I mean, of course I have different decks, but I am looking forward to playing Nicole Bolas, for instance, especially when Hour of Devastation comes out, once his supremacy is acknowledged across the multiverse and everyone bows down before him. That'll be an extra special time to play the Nicole Bolas EDH deck. Um, that said, I do have to have a confession that given other activities in real life and the fact that I've been focusing on legacy and modern, I have not been able to play EDH as much as I would like. I suspect I will start again after GP Vegas. Um, so I'll be talking towards other topics today primarily. Um, and I'll be letting the other hosts speak more towards EDH direct, directly. <laughs> now, legacy is a lot like 
slow it's dual like, commander, right? I understand it's like EDH, but like smaller. I mean, <laughs> so on that note, I, I did want to wrap the topic of legacy into what Sheldon Menery talked about yesterday or last last week. And um, and first of all, I am curious though. Have you received any? messages saying that you weren't hard enough on Sheldon Mentoring, the cancer patient. Well, uh, they haven't read my emails yet, so uh, way to spoil it, buddy. Yeah. Well, they did have a lot of applications to be on the, the high council, I'm sure. So, um, okay, that, that's fair. But uh, uh, one of the, the points he made indirectly, and I feel like it's important to reiterate, is that he was mentioned that Leovold could not be played in a casual way in EDH. Whereas Protein Hulk could be. If Protein Hulk dies, you could just search up a few value creatures, search up your favorite slivers even. Um, so Protein Hulk could be played in a way which won't immediately kill you. Whereas Leovold, not so much. Which is one of the reasons I'm more comfortable with it being released from the ban list. Whereas Leovold is just an incredibly powerful card and incredibly well suited to the legacy format. I feel like Leovold should be one of the forbidden topics, just saying. Uh, he uh, sets off a lot of uh, triggers for me and makes me feel very negatively about other people. And So uh, I'm sure that your fine uh, listeners are all gentle scholars who would never do something like play no, Leovold right. against an unsuspecting pool of EDH players. But I, I do recommend that if you know someone who really, really was sad that Leovold got banned, and really, really enjoys just making people lose their hands in turn uh, two or three. Uh, and then they should look into legacy. Because in the legacy format, that sort of behavior is applauded and encouraged. And Leovold is a welcome addition to the legacy format. <laughs> um, if you enjoy locking your opponents out with Blood Moon, play legacy. You can do that <laughs> turn one. If you love winning on turn one or two, play legacy. Um, if you love slivers but are tired of everyone ganging up on you, play Legacy. You only have one opponent. And uh, probably EDH players who are sp ultra spikes, who really are excited by all these options, probably already have dual lands and fetches anyways. And um, I, I've previously argued on this show, I believe, that uh, I think that Guild Gates will win you more games in a um, casual environment than, like, than dual lands and fetches. But if you really love your dual lands, if you just love playing the most powerful cards, especially if you love the older these older cards that do consider legacy, and, and let me put it like let me pitch it like this way: in the legacy deck of Reanimator, Gristlebrand is essentially your commander. So what what more recommendation do you need? So and and the reason I bring this up, the reason I'm pitching legacy on a commander podcast is because I feel that if you look at a commander EDH as your if if that's the only format you play then it's possible you are the type who's saying well I just want to play with all these band cards I want competitive I want sanctioned EDH tournaments but there are formats which can give you a similar feel and where you'll automatically win twice as much just because there's only one other opponent rather than three opponents um, and if you play both a competitive format like Legacy, and I, I'm, I keep saying Legacy because I feel it's the most direct port, so to speak. It's going to give you the similar feeling of just utterly crushing the opponents every 
possibility of escaping. Well, I mean, couldn't they also play Canadian Highlander, which is basically EDH without the fun parts of EDH? Yeah, well, that's true, but it's it's not sanctioned. <laughs> I, I agree. Um, if And the reason why, if you play a sanctioned competitive format, it will give you more perspective, I feel, and kind of... Uh, if people keep on criticizing you for like you're taking this too seriously or they keep on groaning constantly, guess what? If you groan based on what something your opponent in Legacy does, you're the one at, at fault. You're the, you're the, you're the bad sport. Because um, that first turn Blood Moon, perfectly legal. Perfectly legal. And it was your fault for not mulliganing to a Force of Will or what have you. But anyways. <laughs> your fault for not playing uh, cards that need red in their mana. It was your fault for not winning the die roll and you just have to, you just have to, you just have to take it. <laughs> yeah, if you were better at the game, you would win the die roll. Yeah, well, Magic is a high-variance game, and you just kind of, especially in these older formats, it's possible that people have a more um, stoic outlook. But yeah, you just kind of have to accept that sometimes you're not going to play Magic. <laughs> Some, in order to enjoy these powerful cards, you're just going to not win all, all the games. Or any games. <laughs> well, I well, sound advice. <laughs> so, uh, former Leovold players, go play Legacy. <laughs> and apparently you can use Guild Gates. Just saying. Guild Gates, and, and Guild Gates are perfectly fine cards in EDH. I just put <laughs> Guild Gates in the deck, unbelievably. What? But it wasn't Orzov theme deck. So guess which Guild Gate I put in. Hmm. I refuse to name it. Orzov <laughs> Guild Gate? Maybe? So, <laughs> I mean, that's that's what they're called, right? <laughs> so we are, believe it or not, gonna get to Almond Cat. Almond Cat. Listen to me, Almond Cat. Almond Cat. That's what I meant to say. Um, but first, we have a little bit of news. Since we last spoke before these microphones, Wizards of the Coast released a Magic: The Gathering Online Commander specific ban list oh yeah that we want to just make it clear because there was a significant amount of confusion about this that this only applies to magic the gathering online and it specifically supports a competitive league structure and was tuned oh this is so horrible it was tuned for 1v1 on magic the gathering online and as of right now, which actually it's, uh, we're recording this on the day this starts, on the 10th of May, 2017, the ban list is <laughs> in effect and will be one ban list for both 1v1 and multiplayer games until July 5th, which is when Hour of Devastation releases. At that point, they will <laughs> implement the standard commander ban list for multiplayer but 1v1 will still use their specific ban list so doesn't affect us doesn't affect dual commander players doesn't affect multiplayer commander (laughs) may i may i contribute throw my hat into the ring sir my bowler hat because i got quite cross on twitter about this I think it does affect us, and if you're someone who is getting into Magic and want to play Commander because your friends are playing multiplayer, the fact that seasoned Commander players got confused about it, I'm worried about the new players that go out there, see that there's multiple ban lists for multiple versions of the format. Uh, some have got the Wizards of Wizards of the Coast 
stamp of approval on them. Some are this mysterious rules committee and people are going to either be turned off or confused or waste money on cards they can't actually use in the version of Commander they're trying to play. Why can't they just accept there's perfectly good 1v1 ban list already out there for French Commander, use that, and roll out the multiplayer one immediately? It's really kind of complicated the way that they set it up and the way that their rollouts work. But this band list is just really confusing to me because it's not any existing format, right? Like it's 30 right. life. It's a band list that bans Soul Ring of all things, which is almost a sacred cow in Commander. Uh, my favorite card and the reason I play the format. And <laughs> for instance, it's just like, it, it's neither the French dual ban list. It's not the normal commander ban list. It's, I mean, frankly, they should call it something different. They should yep. call it, I don't know, a uh, half mander or something. It's, it's weird. It's, and the, I think the real thing that got me was the lack of transparency and the surprise in which they announced it without anybody kind of understanding what was going on. Yeah. Like, it's one thing to be like, Hey guys, we're going to be rebuilding the commander format. Do you have any feedback slash Here's a whole thing that we're going to be doing based on this idea versus, hey, tomorrow there's going to be a new format that's 30 life and uses this weird ass band list and we call it Commander. Happy birthday. And everybody's yeah. looking at their deck going, wait a second. That doesn't look like Commander. I don't know what's going on. My Saladar Guardian doesn't win immediately. Somebody talk to me. Some people have been suspicious for a while that Watsy will eventually uh, take control of the ban list away from the rules committee somehow. So basically, I don't think that's ever going to happen. No, but I think there are people that think it would. Yeah, particularly the people that think that Watsy is some sort of evil corporation that wants to ruin their fun rather than create this game they've uh, had (laughs) hours and hours of two decades of enjoyment out of. I mean, the thing is, like, Watsi A doesn't have the time. Commander is, like, they don't have the time to test Modern and Legacy. How are they going to test Commander, right? <laughs> and B, they already run the thing. I mean, what's his name? Uh, Larrabee is on the Commander Rules Committee and right. a high-level dude at Watsi. I don't know what more you need, right? Mm. This was just a confused rollout, this. Thing. It was I, completely baffling. I don't see why they needed it. Why? Who was asking? Exactly. Yeah. We may not ever have <laughs> all the answers behind this decision. It was certainly weird. It really kind of sent ripples through the community, both of worry and uh, there was no small amount of outrage, right? Some of us actually were a little bit angry. And other members of the community, other um, content creators were also against this particular rollout. So I think Wizards really needs to kind of look at how they roll this sort of information out in the future and goodness i hope they never do something like this again <laughs> oh, I, I think they got the message loud and clear <laughs> it certainly seemed like given that like literally the next day they rolled it back yeah like i mean I, i'm pretty sure that they were like oh oh this didn't work oh whoops okay um but I feel like this month they've just had a number of these kinds of missteps of just being like, hey, we're going to do a thing. Oh, we're not doing that thing right now. <laughs> not, I mean, I love you guys, but this needs, this, you got to, for your own mental health, 
do a little bit more planning before you launch a rocket. I mean, it's not like your country is a place where the people in charge just arbitrarily sign orders that roll out rules without really Wouldn't thinking about it. Wouldn't know anything them. about it. <laughs> no, nothing at all. <laughs> the oh last time we recorded, uh, we had Sheldon Mennery on. AE mentioned that before. And uh, he put out a call for us to receive <laughs> resumes for people who were interested in joining the Commander Rules Committee. So please send us your resumes, cast at commanderandmtg.com, and uh, we will read some of them, if not all of them. If we have some time later on and we want to make AE laugh, uh, perhaps we'll read a few of these resumes. Um, and if not... Uh, that's we... impossible. That's impossible. <laughs> and if not, then we will definitely have uh, a show where we talk about these resumes. Grand Prix Las Vegas is coming up. It's middle of June, June 14th, and we will have an announcement of what it is we're doing. We're going to definitely, you know, do things like stream a show and have a live audience on a recorded show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll describe all of that later. In the meantime, um, we want to point out two things related to GP Vegas. The Command Zone Community Highlights, episode number 157, they talk about their plans, as well as mention a whole bunch of really cool content creators. And it turns out we were one of them. We were very happy to hear that. It was great. Thank you very much, Josh and Jimmy, for the mention. We always love the support. You guys are true friends of the show, and we appreciate it. In the meantime, I can't wait to go to that party. And that brings us <laughs> to our second... Well, topic. hopefully I'll be there, Phil. <laughs> yes. Hopefully you'll be there, Sean. You have exactly 100 Great British Pounds to go, don't you? I do. That is very true. Man, what makes him so great anyways? <laughs> I'll explain <laughs> when I meet you in the flesh, even with a cricket bat and uh, imperialism. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had promised that... If once we got to 900 Great British Pounds, I'm just going to call them Pounds from now on. That's what they're called, yes. <laughs> yep. Um, then, well, I have to distinguish them from other Pounds, like the ones growing and accumulating around my waist. Um, <laughs> the When we got to 900 Pounds, I was going to pay the remainder. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am about to do that as we record. And oh, if you hear some Phil. clicking over the next few minutes, I'm not going to pause it, but we are going to reach that 1,000-pound limit and have Sean come to Vegas with I'm us. Be in Vegas. I've already been brewing decks looking forward to kicking your ass all <laughs> over the strip. <laughs> and that's the general your, not specifically me. <laughs> yes, Phil, you believe that. Tell yourself that, Phil. <laughs> I, I, it was... A, Clearly, specifically you, Phil. I, I heard that. <laughs> well, well, well. I did go to the last commander party, um, and it was great. I encourage everyone to uh, to attend. Yeah, must be oh. nice for all of you Vegas going people. Yeah. Can I just say I will record something specific uh, to thank all you GoFundMe people, but the generosity of this community um, genuinely overwhelming you guys i i mean i'm gonna give a lot of my time to you guys because i love doing this show and i love 
making content for you and trying to be funny and sometimes entertaining and always sarcastic for you um and you guys are an important part of my life and doing this for me is I, I i've never had anyone be so kind um i'm awful with unplanned words but i salute you and i can't wait i'll see you all on june the 14th uh, and those of you that can't be there, I'll miss you. Ooh, we look forward to it. I'll pay. I'll be picking you up from the airport, sir. That's true. And on the thirteenth of June, I'll be in L.A. bumming around while you're at work, presumably, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll have nothing to do on the thirteenth of June. If you're in the center of L.A., um, we could grab some food or something. <laughs> L.A. is only a small place, isn't it, Phil? It's a small place. Um, easy to drive around into. Yeah. <laughs> Super easy. Uh, British people stand foreign. out. <laughs> um, well, as an overweight Englishman, I definitely went stick out in the center of LA. I've also <laughs> never wanted to be an actor and don't have daddy issues, so... You know. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to the wrong place, buddy. Make sure your uh, your stay is brief, then. <laughs> but seriously, on the 13th, if anyone is around LA and wants to meet up, um, tweet at me. Yeah. At Copain26. Phil, thank you for topping off the GoFundMe. Um, you've always been a scholar and a gentleman. You're very welcome, Sean. And it will be my pleasure to host you for these couple of days that you're in Los Angeles. You say that now. <laughs> you wait till you come home and have eaten all your food, drunk all your beer. Oh, I don't drink, but you know. <laughs> I do have every Girl Scout cookies my daughter's troop sold. I have one of every copy of that. Uh, listen to me, one of every copy. <laughs> of every I have one box of every type. <laughs> A true commander player. <laughs> so what you're telling me is one of the things I'm going to take home from me from LA and GP Las Vegas is diabetes. <laughs> diabetes and it's the gift of all americans <laughs> exactly we like to refer to them as american pounds <laughs> <laughs> the last girl scout cookies i were given had um a package of very expensive cards sellotaped around the outside of the box i presume you're going to be doing the same for me phil <laughs> i i guarantee there will be cards taped around the box <laughs> <laughs> Some of them will be uh, cards you may never have seen before because <laughs> they're commons from Theros. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are ready for our main topic where we, uh, <laughs> where we do not talk about liches at all and maybe only embalming for a little bit. A.E., now you are... Writing flavor text for Wizards of the Coast. The last time we had you on the show, you um, were uh, merely an entertaining EDH player with some very clever decks that may or may not have included a giant oyster that choked Juliva to death. And, of course, you're the author of several books set in the lands of Loam and uh, other works. So... What can you tell us about writing for wizards? Ah, that is a good question. Because really, the first thing to mention about writing for wizards is what I can't tell you about writing for wizards. Now, other <laughs> flavor text writers you may have heard on various podcasts discuss how they've done their writing, and it's that's their business, how much they want to disclose. But the NDA I received, at least, 
was very different and very specific. In fact, it was a um, it was specifically called a swallow and forget tech NDA. It looks like a little silicon <laughs> ladybug. You take it orally, and then you can't accidentally break the contract. It's, it's adorable, really. It just nestles up against your spine, just like it's a constant internal hug, really. And then anytime someone asks me a question, which I can't answer, I just simply say, that doesn't sound like anything to me. So I, did, I, have, I have looked over some of the questions um, that the, your kind and generous and uh, wonderful patrons asked of me. And it looks like a lot of them are trying to get me in trouble with wizards and little internal ladybug friend in my spine. So uh, I'll just, uh, I'll answer as much as I can, but uh, certainly you have to be understanding of, uh, of my situation. So what you're saying is you're not going to be telling me about the return to homeland. I cannot confirm or deny that there will, is an upcoming homeland set. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm just saying, Baron Sanger has to be safe from Ishin Shade from for a while yet. <sighs> Although I was just thinking about Ishin Shade and Legacy, have to get past those dirty, dirty source source of plowshares somehow. <laughs> That's what I did back in 1994. It still works now. Less good against Caracas, but that's neither here or there. But uh, yeah, uh, let's see. So uh, <laughs> is there? So what I can do is I can ant- clarify the warp, the plane of Amonkhet insofar as Wizards has already revealed that information. And, uh, it, yeah. So if you have a specific question about Amonkhet, which I can answer, or whether or not I can answer it, you can ask that question. <laughs> All right, let's start with the inspiration behind Amonkhet. The world, not the set. One of your fine pre- patrons asked a similar question, and I think I'll go ahead and answer it now. Um, insofar as I can answer it. Uh, <laughs> now, we've, we've seen the visual similarities, of course, the, uh, the, the gods, the pantheon of animal-headed gods, uh, the hieroglyphs, we've seen that. Um, another deep connection, which I kind of stumbled upon myself, so I, I can't confirm that this is what the Wizards of the Coast staff are thinking, but I, I have my suspicions is that it's very referential to the Book of the Dead, um, which is not only kind of one of our the classic things you think about when you think about ancient Egypt, but it's also a lot of what our understanding of ancient Egypt is based on. So is Amonkhet based on ancient Egypt? Well, we don't know exactly what ancient Egypt is like, but we do know the Book of the Dead. And I will say that Amonkhet feels very resonant with the Book of the Dead. And... Uh, so I will give you, you can listen to um, other podcasts about the Book of the Dead. Uh, let's see. Uh, In Our Times podcast, British podcast, recently did an episode on it. But um, what they refer to it is, is, a, uh, is a spell book, actually. So it's not only called the Book of the Dead, which is an awesome name, uh, one that I, probably English people came up with, but it's, I feel it's very true to what it actually is. It's a book of spells to be read by the dead after they're dead, so they would actually bury these uh, books in with the bodies, and they were incredibly well-preserved, which is why we have a good understanding of it. And they, they bury these books of the dead with the bodies, and the idea is that, or something similar to the idea that the once you're dead, you would take this book, and it would be kind of your cheat sheet, your cliff notes, to get through the incredibly difficult, well, or at least incredibly intricate trials, which would await you after the afterlife. Now, the purpose of this book was from their, from like an anthropological perspective is give people comfort. Um, 
I might be getting a little bit deep here, but the, the idea is that people are comforted because they believe they have an understanding of what's happening after death and that they have a script they can use to survive it. And one element that you probably have heard about is that you would weigh your heart against a feather and that was part of the trials that they would face after their death. And then they would say very specific things like, my heart, they had incantations. Again, this is a spell book in, in terms of how they understood it. They'd have incantations that they'd say to get past these gods, to get past these difficult it bits. And what the ultimate goal is to get to their various souls, the afterlife, and to get themselves essentially fully intact to the next life so they could continue to enjoy the afterlife uh, with their bodies intact. And this whole idea of trials, of is getting to the afterlife to uh, kind of making sure that, you're, that there is going to be a next life and that you are going to have a safe body in that next life is critical to the way Amidkut is constructed. So the main difference is that in Amidkut, they undergo these trials while they're alive, but the goal is similar in the sense that they are trying to get to this afterlife in kind of their best uh, shape that they can be. So uh, I felt that as I was reading this Book of the Dead, which I don't know if I recommend you try reading it. It is, it is pretty hard for we with our modern sensibilities to understand. But if, you, if you'd like to research, and again, this In Our Times podcast, went over it a little bit. Um, you can appreciate that there is a lot of resonance with Amonkhet to ancient Egypt as we understand it through the Book of the Dead specifically. Wow. I just uh downloaded that episode whilst you were talking it's actually a really good episode i listened to it earlier this week because i'm a big fan of in our time and um it's just it is very dry it's very complicated but another way to think of it is this is basically a prayer book for the olden days because the way that uh, the ancient egyptian religion is structured was a lot like the way a lot of the earlier polytheistic religions are and you could see a lot of that resonance also in say like Hinduism in Kaladesh and the way that they did the formulas and the chanting and stuff was so um, pervasive through ancient Near Eastern religion that you see those kind of echoes still today. I mean, like when we use the word mantra, it literally means spell as in like you do these hand motions, you do these vocal tics and you say these words in this specific order in the hopes that this result will happen. And so the ancient Egyptians definitely had a real rigorous formulaic method of doing their religious rites and their um, embalming and stuff. And we certainly see a lot of that in Amonkhet. Like when we saw in the story that Kelly Diggs did a few weeks ago of the way the anointed mummies took all the religiosity out of uh, embalming and turned it into just kind of a factory of dead. And it was really neat to see how wizards kind of turned it on its head of taking the spiritualism out of this thing and turning it into a very Nicol Bolas style practical reuse of dead things. Uh, A.E., did they, when you were doing the flavor text for this, were you given that kind of like uh, image to use to start with? Like, did the, did wizards come to you and say, the feel we're going for is Egypt but X? Uh, that doesn't sound like anything to me. 
<laughs> I'm sure you could talk Thanks about what you did, us. not necessarily what's coming, right? Okay, we can't talk about what <laughs> what resources you were given by wizards. Um, but you clearly drew parallels between the Book of the Dead and the materials you were given. Yes. Well, <laughs> we are given a style guide. Um, and then I read some books on my own time. I mean, that's basically what I was asking. The story of Amonkhet opens with some crypts, like with Nyssa kind of exploring and finding crypts under the sands. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about that? So let's see. In the story released today, Trespasser, I believe they do find a... It's actually presented as being a, within the Hecma itself, where they do find a different... And they found a few of these glyphs even in the he, within the Hecma, within their city, uh, which do seem to indicate that there are previous cultures and that they uh, had different representations of art and different ways of looking at the world. And then I, uh, we have seen representations of eight gods, whatever that means at this point. Right, because we don't know actually what that means at this point. That's true, you don't. <laughs> well, I mean, sure we do. We, it, it means that... Uh, the other uh, shards were destroyed by uh, um, Nicol Bolas, and now we have just the five monocolors left. Are you suggesting that Amonkhet is Alara? I'm suggesting that uh, Vevictus, Hesmadia, and Chromium will rise again. Uh, I really applaud your pronunciation of Vevictus, Hesmadia. That was great. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't forget this ruse. I actually... Uh, I think Vivictus Azamati was my first, definitely my first favorite. Of, uh, Mine was always Arcata Sabbath because I loved Bant even at the very beginning. And it makes me sad that old Nikki B just went off to the other four. And uh, uh, I'm just saying we've got three gods and there are four elder dragons. Weirder things have happened. I'm <laughs> predicting that Meld will come back in Hour of Devastation and we will have half Chromium, half Palladium Ores. You heard it here first. Wow. If that happens, I will get you a special soothsayer's hat. Wouldn't that be the most amazing the and ridiculous thing? <laughs> oh, <laughs> would, would the other uh, elder dragons come back with their sparks ignited? Uh, that would be cliche, though, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Well, it's only happened once before, so by definition it wouldn't be cliche. Fair. They should come back, though, because, I mean, this was such a perfect time for them to have sarcophagi of, like, you know, the Coptic jar that holds Chromium's heart or something. Yeah. That would have been super neat. Yeah. Just saying. If if you were looking for that Coptic jar, AE, where would you look for a Cop Coptic jar that someone had hidden in their heart? Uh, now, are you asking me this as a <laughs> devoted EDH player or as a potential... Uh, elite inquisitor searching for liches, of which there are none present here. Look, I am not part of a long and storied bloodline and family of British <laughs> witch hunters and would have no such interest in that. So as an EDH player. Okay. So, okay. Uh, strictly as an EDH player, I would hide it in you, Sean's most 
prized possession, so you're going to have to destroy it to find it. So that's that. That's just that's my recommendation. Right. Just let me just go check the back of my Les Paul one second. <laughs> Wouldn't that be your uh, Lazav deck box? Yeah, that is actually pretty beautiful. <laughs> and it could be manifested even between the cards, so really to be sure that you destroy, you'd have to rip them all up. But then wouldn't that be the heart of the cards? Wait, that's... Yeah, no. you, you would. Straight through. <laughs> if the Elder Dragons were resurrected and came back, would they be the EDH watch? Yes. Oh. Yes, I am here for that. That does not sound like anything to me. <laughs> <laughs> That is certainly not something I am telling Kelly Diggs right now. Um. (laughs) (laughs) When writing flavor text uh, for a set like Amonkhet, which obviously has a uh, a real-world historical root, unlike somewhere like Zendikar that's more based on a pre-existing fantasy sort of adventure world, is it hard to look at like because i've noticed a a very distinct and i think probably accurate oh not accurate appropriate lack of like judeo-christian uh egypt crossover is it hard to sort of resist looking at that sort of stuff do you do you focus on specific sources for egyptian knowledge other than the book of the dead Uh, or how do you filter out what not to use i guess is my question i can't answer this question which patron Henry Studenberg asked. It says, how do concerns about racial and cultural sensitivity factor into your writing? As usual, uh, Henry asks a better question with the same thing. With the same <laughs> basic, yeah. Thanks, Henry. The and, way this is phrased, I, I can answer. And that's patron um, Henry Stukenborg. Stukenborg. Very good. So, um, so, in general, I first and foremost... There's plenty of research that you can find online in, in libraries about the topic you're looking into. And then also it is important to do outreach and get beta readers who are representative of, of the groups you're trying to represent in your fiction. Um, and huh. to name a specific example, uh, just as last week someone mentioned on Twitter that she was so sick of strong female characters. And now if you're setting out to write a female character and you're a guy, you're, First thing you might think of, like, well, don't worry, ladies, ladies, I'm going to make her a strong female character. But in fact, there's an article written uh, by Sophia McDonald specifically about why strong female characters are so toxic and not an automatic turnoff to many women readers. And this is something which may not at all occur to a guy writer, a, uh, a gentleman writer, even with if he has everyone's best interest at heart just simply through ignorance of the topic may make a blunder and now you can read this article by sophia mcdonald yourself it's entitled strong female characters but uh an idea of what she's getting at here is that if you set out to make a character strong you're denying her nuance you're um take one of the most probably the most popular character of all time at least in the modern era is sherlock holmes we think of his strong intellect. However, that's only one element of his character. That's what makes him interesting. That's what makes him exciting to kind of follow around. But he is, in other ways, a very toxic, drug-addled, uh, mas- uh, just absolutely rude to everyone he meets. And he's allowed to have his eccentricities. He's allowed to have his uh, 
playing violins. He's allowed to have his locking himself in a box and smoking. Um, all these things which aren't necessarily aiming towards strength, not necessarily aimed to kicking everyone's ass all the time, but which allow him to be a fully fleshed human being. So uh, this is um, so I do feel it's important to uh, again have beta readers who can kind of catch you on this. Uh, a lot of the stories I've written myself have fem well all, all of them have female protagonists. Well, and my women beta readers delight in telling me all the things I've done wrong. In fact, one of them I wrote specifically. Well, how do you want how do you want me to handle this romance? Uh, and she just said, well, I prefer you get it wrong so I can laugh at you and we can talk about it later. So that, that's what we did. And uh, I did what I could to fix it after the beta readers had it. What is it, in your opinion, uh, about Amonkhet that we've seen? As in, A lot of people are very interested in asking questions about the theme of Egypt and how it's how it's uh, so it invokes such uh, passioned responses from people. What do yeah. you think about Amonkhet is so inspiring to uh, players of magic or consumers of magic um, story? What is it that you think pulls out such uh, passioned opinions in Amonkhet specifically? Um, the visuals are so striking and the proportions are so grand. When you think about Egypt, you think about these vast monuments which are so incredible that you almost uh, it's almost easier to believe that aliens came down and helped build us. <laughs> so when you think of Egypt from a Westerner's viewpoint, and this is again, it's it, uh, I'm going to be... From a Westerner's viewpoint, Egypt is very uh, mysterious. You get the mm. sense that you're walking into this tomb. You might see things which uh, you've never, uh, which are hard to understand. All these glittering treasures. So there's this huge sense of adventures. There's this sense of exploring. Um, this tingling sense of entering the unknown. These tombs are full of rich, uh, probably pungent scent. Mm. And when you go down these things, the scent is so strong from these. Uh, embalming fluids and, and such that it might cause curse-like symptoms. There's curses written over the doors for a long time. We could not read hieroglyphs as a language for hundreds of years, maybe, well, for certainly a long time. Hieroglyphs, hieroglyphs were just um, indecipherable. Yeah. So it was this incredible mystery what was written down. And once we understood, once we understood the language, we got to read these hieroglyphs, it was just opening our eyes. Everything was incredible. And again, the scale is just so breathtaking and inspiring. And again, I, I'm, it's important to reiterate that this is a Westerner's view of what Egypt was. We don't necessarily have a good understanding of what it was for the common person. Again, because a lot of our understanding comes from these tombs in this Book of the Dead, which is what was given to the rich who were buried. So we don't necessarily have a great understanding of how life was for the average ancient Egyptian, but we do have a sense of these grand epic temples and these grand epic pyramids. And it's likely that when people view Amonkhet as a set, you see similar epic scope, similar um, rituals that we don't necessarily initially understand. Again, it cleaves very closely to the Book of the Dead and these elaborate literals, these elaborate trials to get to the afterlife. Uh, initially, we don't understand those, and it's mysterious to us. 
and we're walking down these, walking through these great sandstone pylons with um, all all this uh, all this uh, made uh, columns and uh, just this huge. We have this idea of this huge vast desert, which also captures the imagination, and then. The land is tied to this Nile, which is the lifeblood of their land, and its cycles are flowing in and out, and it's just, it's everything is connected to this very epic river, and it resonates so strongly through their religion, through their mythos, and it has this great adventuresome purity to the whole Egyptian experience, cast through the eyes of a, of a Westerner. Yeah, and I think Wizards managed to capture a great deal of that kind of epic scale because of, you know, anytime we see a landscape on one of the cards, mm. it's always this this large visa and, you know, striking pyramids or obelisks. Um, there, there's one, I think, of uh, when, an early piece of art that was released that's of Kefnet. I believe it's of Kefnet, and there are obelisks poking through the clouds. That's just, it's really cool. And then the distinctly magic aspect of it with the floating parts of the, the pyramids, that's something that um, uh, we, we latched on to for a little project we're doing for Commander and as well, just like to celebrate Amonkhet, you, can, you really need those pyramids and those very large structures and the, the bolus curves. The bolus curves I found were the great in the art were the great unifier that unified the sort of Egyptian stuff with the uh, multiverse, the the universe that wizards have created for the magic setting. They're instantly recognisable to anyone who's been in magic for I think even a small amount of time since. Mm-hmm. What well, Khan's? You could probably recognise the bowlers curves from that of all the Ugin stuff, or any fan of the Commander's Brew. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> They're sitting there going, why is that middle of that massive monument not got a hard hat on it? <laughs> yeah, their their logo is very fun. Oh, we need to get some altar art, full art lands, with hard hats painted into the Bolas monuments. Oh, I don't know anyone that will be able to do that. Uh, I'm going to throw it your way. Yeah, there there are people who can do such a thing. All I need to do is get some bolus full art lands. <laughs> yeah, they're like fifty cents each. So before we move into your general um, inspiration and how you draw inspiration for all of your work, AE, I I'm I'm actually I'm a big fan of your non magic work as well. And I did notice, and this was what I was alluding to a little bit earlier. Who knows if that made it to air? Um, that a lot of your published flavor text actually reads like um, with the same sort of sardonic wit as one of the other characters that you frequently write. Um, I don't want to give anything away for for prospective fans of that series. And everybody listening right now should go buy Brood of Bones. It's a little bit dark. Um especially in comparison to the rest of AE's work, but it's excellent and it's um, worth the read. And then reading all of the subsequent uh, books as well. But you look... Well, thank you, Phil. Uh, I'm very glad that uh, the novels worked for you. And uh, my goal is to take readers on 
to the furthest shore of fantasy down crystal caverns full of amethyst crystals everywhere. And huh. uh, I typically, readers who will enjoy my stories typically are ones who are veterans to the van to the fantasy genre and are looking for something they haven't read before, something that uh, maybe, in the case of Brutal Bones, maybe a bit too dark for, uh, that is that is definitely dark fantasy, uh, meaning it has quite a bit of dash of horror to it, but horror the horror genre typically ends in a tragedy and there's a feeling of helplessness which pervades throughout. Um, being, this being a dark fantasy, the protagonist is capable enough to meet the horror at hand. Yes, that's very important to note. The um, the the tone of Brute of Bones in particular, um, uh, it's so hard not to reveal anything, right? But it, it does get darker than your other books, but each of your other novels does touch on some really dark aspects. and And I find it I find the contrast thrilling because, of course, your protagonist is fairly optimistic, right? I mean... Well, as much as a grumpy enchantress who is cursed with endless sleep can be, I suppose. But yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, in terms of... Uh, I think you you mentioned uh, uh, what the works I've been influenced by. I could be remiss if I didn't mention Brandon Sanderson because he is also a magic player. I haven't played him... EDH, but he had this silly Eldrazi, uh, I guess it was a legacy deck. No, vintage. I guess it was, it was vintage. Yeah. Okay, so boxes and stuff in it. I need to but, tell uh, a story he, right now. Uh, Brandon Sanderson and I are uh, actual friends. And um, when he <laughs> came to uh, San Francisco for one of his signings, possibly the last Wheel of Time book, possibly one of his own books, uh, I had a box of Gatecrash. And I was like, hey, you know, uh, why don't we just draft afterwards? So he invited me over to his hotel and me and a couple of friends. And we all got together to uh, play a gate crash draft. And I'm like casual magic player. I'm okay. That was still when I was coming back before I was really good. Brandon Sanderson is a shark. Uh, <laughs> and he used his first uh, Mistborn advanced to buy a full set of power for his cube and if you're that invested in magic that you've got power and a cube uh that means you're better than me at that point <laughs> and dude play he drafted an like a perfect orzov deck that just wrecked us so hard and like you know if you know sanderson he's this like kind mormon dude very gentle doesn't swear very you know peaceful and peaceable and he's just ripping you to shreds with like Ping, 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 ping. And I'm like, this is like the nut draw Orzov deck. And you're just destroying me with this kind smile. And I don't know what to do. <laughs> it was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> that That is so. And uh, um, the way he does magic, the magic has systems, has specific rules. And he uses that magic to solve problems in the stories. And typically the way the ultimate problem is solved is with an innovation in that magic and the innovation makes sense it doesn't feel like a cheat because the rules have been so well established and this way of thinking about magic uh, it's not too hard to draw this back to magic cards in specific uh, this the idea of uh, that each color does have specific strengths and weaknesses some things it can do and some things it can't so this kind of analytical approach to magic is is 
the game is a great influence on writing and it contains so many wonderful exciting words from stifle to uh, to shatter to uh, to crush i i have certain preferences when it comes to rules but <laughs> it, other influences i would say uh, terry pratchett pg wodehouse oscar wilde jane austen those are some of my favorite now let me tell you the story about the time i played magic with jane austen but uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Wait a minute. It involved our grim grin. Now, now who's the lich? Now who's the lich? You can't fool me this time. But no, I, Jane Austen would make a great lich. She would make a great lich. I just <laughs> can't get that in my head now. Now, just, if ever there was a line to isolate, it's Jane Austen would make a great lich. Yeah, she just just tamp it down. Okay. Anyway, so go, moving on, but um. Uh, I've been thinking more and more about short stories recently, because uh, in part because um, it, it's central to the way magic cards tell stories. Uh, so some of my favorite short stories, and I don't think it's particularly, not even just favorite, I think some of the best written short stories that I, I've read are by James Harriot Animal Stories. So if you're looking to read what I would consider just some, uh, I, I, I would go as far as to say that they're Easily the most entertaining and best short stories I've read. Uh, James Harriot's Animal Stories. He's just such a master at craft, uh, making the protagonist sympathetic, making the, uh, the story interesting, ending with a twist, starting with sympathy factors. Just great technical writing. He's definitely a better writer than he was ever a veterinarian. I think that's pretty clear. But uh, so, uh, and then was, specifically, uh, his work was all filmed and put out as BBC programs. So uh, people who were alive, or children in the 80s, or young people in the 80s in England were uh, very familiar with his work. Yeah. Um, and then a specific, my probably my favorite short story overall is called The Deep Water Bride by Tamsin Muir, if I'm saying her name right. And it's, uh, if I were to describe it, it's Cthulhu meets Glitter Punk. And it's just a delightful huh. short story. So short stories give you a great opportunity to explore an exciting, fantastical concept or an exciting character in almost like a freeze frame picture. But what I like about magic cards, the short stories, the magic stories, is that you get a picture, you get a screenshot, you get a sensation, which is what a short story is good at. But you also get a sense of continuity, that something bigger is happening that these characters, that something more monumental is happening. Uh, often when I read other short stories, they end and I feel like, well, okay, but what did this really amount to? It, does this really have a meaning? It feels too close to life in the sense that it feels almost meaningless. Uh, but with magic card short stories, and what I think I like best about them is that we do have this serial nature to them. So we have a brief snippet of excitement. We have a uh, expose on one character, I, um, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, and what they're doing. But it also fits into a greater uh, storyline, and so it gives a greater sense of purpose. That's what I think I enjoy most about the storytelling of magic. And you mean specifically the storytelling of magic through the magic cards, right? Through the uh, actually no, as referring to uh, in that case the stories which occur uh, weekly. Uh, when we're in the storytelling vein, I guess we're in the Amund Get story block at this point. Yeah. Weekly on the Magic website, you can search them out by just typing Magic Story. And if you're more interested in the lore and more interested in the 
what we call the Vorthos aspects of the game, uh, that would be a good thing to read. Yeah, we are um, we are big fans of the magic story. We follow it. Uh, I haven't been able to read this week's, but I read them each week. Um, if only so that we can discuss it. Actually, it's worth mentioning that a combination of our $10 patrons and our deck testing group together formed a Vorthos conversation group where we end up dissecting the magic storyline as manifest in the cards and in the story, um, rele- the weekly story releases. Um, I need to get the, in on that. Do you? Uh, uh, yeah, it gets it gets pretty nerdy. And we don't only discuss magic stories, too. We'll talk about the latest movie. We'll talk about video game plot lines, um, novels. I've been sort of, um, uh, I've been pimping A's work. <laughs> uh, um, ah. You poison me with praise. Thank you. <laughs> it's really good stuff. I can't, I can't stress that enough. And if you have a, a, again, you know, another plug, you're not asking for these plugs, which is really cool. But and <laughs> with, if you have a kind of a dark bent toward, if you prefer a slightly dark tinge to your fantasy, AE's work is is excellent. It remains high fantasy. It remains optimistic while at the same time touching on some of the darkest human emotions. And I'll put human in quotes sometimes. So I suppose it does bear mentioning that one of the stories I did write called Fox's Bride does have an Egyptian-themed setting. Um, So if you are interested in kind of my take on a fantasy world which has flavors of Egypt. You could look into that, the, the premises. It's a, there's a desert fox, an enchantress, and a sacrificial marriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. Um, it's a good starting off point as well. So, you know, if you want to skip the darker brood of bones, and that's a good place to start. Oh, boy. So Why would much. you want to skip the dark stuff? That's the good stuff. Oh, and and the contrast, (laughs) the contrast is so, uh, so flavorful, so poignant. It's wonderful. Um, I can't sing his praises enough, and it's starting to sound like. uh, Tell us how you really feel, listeners. Listeners, right? He's not just giving an oral um, massage to A <laughs> because he's on the pod. He does this when A is not here. Yeah, it's true. Fine, I'll read it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah um sean i do think when i think of brood of bones i do think that you would enjoy it a great deal okay so how would it compare to my favorite ever book that's a unfair comparison i don't even know <laughs> well what uh, is. in that context probably not well i would, I would guess but uh do you so mean the... again if you are interested in a dark story with a flogged protagonist who borders on the anti-hero spectrum then you might be interested in brood of bones Let's get into some of the meat of this show and start talking about individual cards. As you heard, this is the first part of our A.E. Marling interview. Part two will come next week. We hope you enjoyed the show. We want to thank everybody who contributed to the podcast, including Nate Burgess for the music, Mr. Picto and my wife for our logo, and of course, Justin for his server space. This episode was edited by... Justin Rev and Fuego Robinson, 
and we really appreciate his making himself available to do that for us. Talk to you next week. Commander in